Welcome to the CROCcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's CROC Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Catherine Bolton, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Peace Studies, sits down to talk with Siobhan McEvoy-Levy, Professor of Political Science and Peace and Conflict Studies at Butler University. They discuss pop culture, youth, and young adults, and peace building. This is one of a number of episodes recorded during the recent Building Sustainable Peace Conference that took place at the Kroc Institute in November 2019. Siobhan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You've done so much work in youth and peace building, and you've been doing it for quite a long time. But my first question for you is that's not actually where you started. Your first book was on American exceptionalism. So I'm just going to ask you about your path. What first drew you to studying youth and to studying youth in the context of conflict and peace? Well, I've always been interested in narrative and story and voice and who has it and who doesn't, how our stories create and shape our realities. And so I started my first book was a focus on U.S. presidential rhetoric and public diplomacy. And those are really loud voices high platforms and a lot of influence. And I moved away from studying those elite narratives around the time of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. I'm originally from Northern Ireland. And I was curious to see how the official rhetoric of peace and reconciliation that came with that agreement actually was experienced and translated at the local level to the lives of young people and others. So again, this is also about story and voice and, and who gets to speak about peace. So I began to do focus groups and interviews with young people about what they thought peace was and what their hopes were for peace in Northern Ireland. So that's how I kind of transitioned there. And I thought it was very important to do that because the official rhetoric of we're doing it for our children and peace is for the next generation doesn't always translate into policy for the next generation. Mm -hmm. And young people are the people who are going to carry any agreement forward. And they're the ones that are going to be most impacted by education, health care, security policy, and so on. And yet it's always for the youth and right. rather than of the youth mm -hmm. or by the youth. Right. Exactly. It's on the youth. <laughs> <laughs> so you've now been working in youth and peace building for two decades. Can you tell us a bit about where the scholarly focus was when you started and what you see is happening in the intervening years? Well, it's good to see that it's much more inclusive now. I think we've become more self-reflective in peace research. There's much more influence of feminist, post-colonial, post-structural ideas, much more impact of critical perspectives, and that's good to see. I think we've also become more self-reflective about interventions and the pitfalls of interventions and, and start to think more about what are the, the foundational ideas behind those interventions that we maybe need to unpack and critique some more. Do you have any particular interventions that you're thinking of that are sort of emblematic of the failures and, and what has happened in the interim? Not in particular, but I would say that interventions that are directed towards young people, wherever they are, tend to be structured and managed by these notions 
of young people are either troublemakers or peacemakers, mm -hmm. and that one way or another, we need to manage or contain them. So we can contain their troublemaking through security mechanisms, or we can contain and manage and direct their peacemaking in the ways that we want as mm -hmm. adults, as elders, because we want to pass on a certain set of lessons and practices. And those kinds of interventions are very, very common And they really are shaped by the fact that the world of policy is a world of elites, of adults, of people who are often detached from the reality of young people's lives. Mm -hmm. What is good to see is that we are critiquing that now. That we recognize that and in the policy arena it's recognized too. The question is more now of how do we move beyond these practices? Mm -hmm. Are we able to move beyond these practices even with the best will in the world? What does real participation mean? These kinds of questions. Or do we not even have the ability to ask how to do that that right. we're so cognitively closed by the last several decades of participation? Right. Yeah. We tick the boxes. We have the language of participation. And it's almost now that we say it, but... It's meaningless. It's become meaningless and tokenistic. Which is funny because this whole idea of meaningful participation yes. now being you know, front and center at the mm -hmm. table is both recognizing that, but also doubling down on essentializing participation itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I'm very curious about your recent project on youth and mm. pop culture and peace. And it has quite a provocative title, the book that you just published. So it's called Peace and Resistance in Youth Cultures, Reading the Politics of Peacebuilding from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. Right. Talk us through the genesis of this project mm -hmm. and your thoughts about undertaking the research for it. So this work follows on from my interest in what young people think about peace and violence and how they learn about peace and violence and how they practice peace activism, social justice activism in their everyday lives. And one of the vehicles for doing that is through popular culture. Mm -hmm. Popular culture is very important to a lot of people, maybe particularly young people. So, you know, I started by reading the books and thinking about how these books connected with all of the horrors of world politics, child mm -hmm. soldiers, genocides, authoritarian governance, human rights abuses, torture. These are all themes in young adult literature. Mm -hmm. This is literature that's written for 12-year-olds but is actually read by people who are a lot older mm -hmm. and then becomes translated into films and all kinds of merchandise and theme parks. There's a Hunger Games theme park in Dubai. I There was unaware the of Harry that. Harry Potter theme park type activities. And so popular culture is a thing we do in common with others. It's stories that we share that help create our culture. But it's more than stories. It's also processes of production mm -hmm. and consumption. And so there's an embodied element to how we play and how we entertain ourselves. So I became very interested in how that was shaping our capacity to understand peace, to want peace, to know peace, and the kinds of peace or pieces that we could build with each other, both in the global north, but also across the global north, global south divide. Because whether we like it or not, the popular culture and all that production is globalized and it shapes the worlds of people in various ways. I find that interesting because in both of these series of books, there is no peace achieved without first there being a massive battle. So it's not as though peace can be achieved without that element of life-taking conflict mm -hmm. in the interim. Yeah, I think that's one of the problematic aspects of this literature, but maybe we could 
say, all literature that's oriented towards young people because it's part of recreating a culture of war and a culture of violence mm -hmm. and producing the citizen who will be willing to go to war. What is interesting about a book like The Hunger Games, though, is that the key protagonist at the end rejects war mm -hmm. and violence, but also rejects politics, which I thought was doesn't want to be part of political solution either at the end, which is very interesting. These books, these books were written by adults for young people. So there may be better understood in terms of how adults think about young people and mm -hmm. what they hope for young people, what their fears are about and for young people. But what's also interesting is that young people are taking the stories and turning them into their own stories through fan fiction and through fan activism. So Siobhan, can you give us a few examples of how it is that young people are interacting with this literature that is for them, but not authored by them? Yes. So one way is through writing fan fiction. I read a lot of fan fiction stories about both Harry Potter and The Hunger Games. And in those stories, young people are writing themselves into the story when they may have been excluded from the story originally. So young people of color, young LGBTQ people, young people with disabilities are writing themselves in as key characters in new stories or reworked stories of the original. And from there, they're also connecting with other people who are critiquing their stories and making political statements, connecting people to political activities. Then there's also activism actual activism on the ground, street activism, but also online and social media activism. There is a group called the Harry Potter Alliance that does a lot of work with young people and is primarily an online organization. And they have done activism ranging from issues of famine to gay marriage to economic justice, bullying in schools, many issues that are powerful and important in young people's lives. And they use the books as a stepping off point. They use themes, slogans from the books. Other activists, there have been activists in Hong Kong, there have been activists in Russia, there have been activists in Thailand, and other places that have employed themes like If You Burn, We'll Burn With You from The Hunger Games. Wow. The Black Lives Matter movement also used that theme. If We Burn, You Burn. Yeah, If We Burn, You Burn. And a group who wanted to raise attention to police killings of young African-Americans rewrote the song The Hanging Tree from mm. The Hunger Games to draw attention to Eric Garner's killing. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, there's a video on YouTube, you can watch it. They took the song and sang it in a shopping mall. And so wow. it's also about the use of pop culture in spaces of mass consumption mm -hmm. and how activists, these weren't all young activists either, but activists are, are practicing detourment. You know, they're taking pop culture and using it strategically for their, for their own ends. So I find that all really interesting. There's a great debate, of course, about whether or not this is true, real activism or whether it's more of used to be called slacktivism. You will have debates, online debates, where people will say, this isn't real activism. Isn't it sad that young people don't have any real ideologies or real understanding of peace building, that they only have to go to these books for their education? Hmm. 
I obviously disagree with that because I think that the young people that I know, they are very intelligent. They know these, this is fiction. They know the difference between fiction and reality, but they also know that fiction and reality are blurred. It's part of the zeitgeist, yeah. these yeah. two series, you yeah. know, an easy way to tap into people's imaginations. Right. Absolutely. You were first at Croc mm-hmm. about 19 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. Sorry, it's it's when you started working on peacebuilding, but you edited this fantastic volume, Troublemakers or Peacemakers, which sort of captured the state of the field Mm. of youth and peacebuilding at the time. When you look back on that, how do you sort of see that volume in retrospect? I'm really pleased with the amazing contributions to the volume. Looking back, it's fascinating to see that then it was kind of, I wouldn't say pushing up against a brick wall, but trying to make the case, trying to make the argument that young people should be involved in peace process and should be involved in peace building wasn't actually an easy case to make. There was a lot of skepticism and resistance from various quarters, some of it for, for good reasons. And today, that's basically mainstream now with the UN Security Council resolutions 2250 and 2419 and all of the reports that have been written around it that has been mainstream and accepted. Now we have a whole set of new problems mm-hmm. to consider but the main thrust of bringing young people into the discussion at the time of what was post-accord peacebuilding, what we were talking about, it was to be empirically accurate because young people were already there. They were there as combatants. They were there as bystanders. They were there as peacebuilders in various forms. They just weren't recognized as such. And so... I believed from my work with young people in Northern Ireland that young people were interested in peace. They were suspicious of many of the interventions that were being made in their name. One thing that I remember really clearly was a young person saying to me, well, I asked, you know, will there be peace or will the peace agreement in Northern Ireland bring peace? And he said, well, it will be what you call peace. And I thought it was a very revealing statement and intelligent because it was saying there will be a middle class, maybe even external actors definition of peace. But for young people who are in working class communities or who have all of the problems of crime, drugs, violence on the streets, segregated education, maybe it won't be that much different. Mm -hmm. And so these voices are really important to bring in to provide a corrective to optimism about peace accords that isn't isn't warranted necessarily. Not warranted, definitely not. Yeah. So what prompted you to revisit that volume at this particular moment? Well, you know, it's really important to continue to consider young people's own subjective experiences and beliefs about war and peace. Young people are a changing cohort. Mm-hmm. So we can't assume that just because the notion of young people's participation is somehow enshrined at an international level and international discourse, that that's going to translate into respect for young people, their genuine inclusion in peace processes, and peace building that is receptive to their needs and interests. The only way to ensure that is to continue as scholars to think critically about these discourses and about these practices and to continue to try to link the worlds and lives of young people to the worlds and lives of elites and to policymakers. And so revisiting this isn't about updating so much as about recognizing how 
the world has changed, that we've had now more than a decade of a global war on terror mm -hmm. and the introduction of policies to counter violent extremism or prevent violent extremism. We've had massive uprisings in the MENA region and we've had mass protests in, around the world involving youth that are youth-led movements. Mm -hmm. And all of these have been reasons why we now have more of attention to youth, why youth have a voice at the table, but they may not be providing the space where young people's voice is truly heard. We have the problem of representation, whose young people's voices mm -hmm. are heard. And then not only hearing, but being taken seriously, as your own work has shown, right? Acting on young people's consultations. And so I'm interested in exploring the lessons of history, the present moment, the challenges of the present moment in terms of youth and peace building, and also creating a bridge between the focus on over there, the global south and zones of armed conflict, bridging that with over here, the so-called peaceful global north, mm -hmm. but where we have many of the same issues affecting youth of exclusion, and that the volume can bridge that, help transform our notion of what peace building is and where peace building is. With that youth. it's not just zones of armed conflict. Right. And that those zones of armed conflict are zones of armed conflict, partly because of decisions that are made in the global north. Mm -hmm. and that the decisions that are made in the global north are shaped by culture and values and beliefs that young people, who ultimately some of will become policymakers, are taught, again, as educators as well as scholars. I think it is incumbent upon us to think about those connections in our training and our pedagogy and our teaching and our curriculum when you're working with young people who are going to be the future policymakers and leaders. Mm, absolutely. So just one final question for you. You said problems of representation mm -hmm. and voice. Mm -hmm. I wanted you to talk us a little through your current project where I know you are writing with young people rather than just about young people mm -hmm. or being the person to throw quotes around what young people said. So uh, just take us briefly through what that project entails. Yes, the project entails working with young people. And how do we define them? Mm, well, <laughs> a perennial problem. Yes, that includes teenagers and young adults. Mm -hmm. So there are university students and young people in high school or out of high school in a variety of non-formal education settings. And what it entails is trying to work together on the same question. For example, one of the the issues that we've worked on together was how do your memories of popular culture from being a child shape what you think about international relations like peace and security? And we each wrote a memory, a sort of auto-ethnography of our early childhood loves in popular culture. And it was very revealing the complexity of everyone's memory, but also to compare a 17-year-old today with me, a 50-year-old, the differences and similarities that could be seen. But what was really important was, I thought, was that we need to give young people the opportunity to write security, to write international relations. Mm -hmm. So in the next stage of the project, we're looking at what does peace building mean to me? How am I securitized? And does the UN Security Council 2250 have any meaning and relevance in my life as a young person? Most young people haven't even heard of it. 
So in the first instance, True. it's not relevant mm -hmm. to their lives. But when they hear about it, what do they think about it? And so in that way, we can collectively contribute to writing peace and security. That's the project. Stay tuned. <laughs> yes, exactly. Stay tuned. Siobhan, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all the episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.